This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each episode, we ask a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you. This podcast contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, what is sex like after addiction? This question was inspired by one of our listeners. His name is Scott. He lives in Australia, and he is a recovering meth addict. Hi, this is Scott. I'm a 39-year-old gay guy, and I live in Sydney, Australia. Pre-meth, I was probably the most vanilla gay guy in existence. Um, whereas you hit the meth, and vanilla ain't it's not enough anymore it's kink it's group sex and it's sex for hours and days um you know i can remember a six-day session once and you know you're just with these other guys who are in the same headspace as you and the ideas just flow and you just go down rabbit holes you never thought existed in the beginning um for the first few years, because I had a 15-year meth history, um, it was just sex. It was get on the meth, go and get sex, sex clubs, hook up lines, internet. Um, and But after a while, unfortunately, I needed meth to function. You know, it, I got to that level where I couldn't get through a day without. It was two days before Christmas 2014 when I woke up in a homeless shelter Um I'd gone in space, you know, 15 years is a long time, but I'd gone from six-finger income, owning a house, owning a car, to a homeless shelter with a bag with two T-shirts and a pair of shorts in it, and that was all meth. And, you know, I woke up that morning and my first instinct was to reach for the phone and call the dealer. And the second instinct was, oh, my God, what have I done to myself? Scott is sober now. He moved away from the city and lives in the suburbs in a flat that he loves. He's got a supportive network of friends and told us that he has an amazing life. The only thing that he says isn't better now that he's sober is sex. Sex without meth is difficult for me. Um, It's been such an integral part of my sex life for 15 years. And, you know, in some ways, I feel like I've, you know, gone back to being a virgin almost because I'm having to find what interests me, what turns me on these days, because I still have all these deep ingrained interests in kink. But unfortunately, the the community here and the scene is so drug-driven that, you know, that's not an option that's open to me anymore. And, you know, quite frankly, I've gone from sex probably every weekend to in the last 12 months I've probably had sex five times. It's a good thing in a way because, you know, this whole time without that whole focus around my sex life has actually let me rediscover who I am. But in the same token, it's it's kind of boring and a little bit sad for me that, you know, I had these amazing connections with people and, you know, some of them are great people, but they're not safe anymore. And it's, I've got to reimagine myself. Noah and I wanted to explore the realities of sex after addiction. This isn't an experience that either of us can directly relate to, but we've gathered the stories of some people who can. 
In today's episode, you'll hear from Brian Rinker, a journalist and recovering heroin addict from San Francisco. You'll also hear from Sasha Zimmerman, formerly known as Sasha Z. Skoblik. She's the author of Unwasted, My Lush Sobriety, and a senior editor at The Atlantic. We'll begin with Brian Rinker, who recently spoke with Noah. Tell me about the first time that you tried heroin. What was the situation? How did it happen? From what I remember, I was like 21 years old or something and had a lot of friends who had used heroin growing up, like in high school, like that would either disappear and come in and out of my life. And so I knew that heroin was out there and a lot of people that I you know, knew used it. And for some reason, I thought in my mind that like one day I want to do heroin. And then so I was at a party I mean, it wasn't like a super big party or anything. It was like a few people hanging around drinking. And some guy that I know said, I have heroin. You want to buy it? And I said, yes, I do. I don't really remember what the actual high felt. I just remember it was kind of like overwhelming. And I wanted to do it again. It kind of is just this, yeah, overwhelming kind of euphoric where you're kind of my brain stopped stop going in circles and just thinking about the same things over and over again, I was able to like relax. And that's what I kind of take away from my heroin use was that it just allowed me to take this like deep breath and relax and forget about all my anxiety and worries kind of thing. It was like the thing I was always looking for in my life. And once you started using, how long were you using for? Well, after that point, I didn't become like a straight up heroin junkie. I used heroin off and on for years some days I might go on little runs of it, doing it every day for a couple weeks or something like that. But I think it was it was a few years of just using it off and on before I got hooked. And then I used it every day for like five years as and like lived like a heroin junkie for the most part. So in that whole time was about like from 21 to 29, I'm guessing. So about like eight years or so, eight or nine years. Were you dating anyone? Did you have a girlfriend? Tell me what your relationships were like when you were using heroin. It's different for a lot of different people. Actually, it might be different for people who just use different types of drugs they're experiencing this. And like heroin is notorious for being like, uh, like it kills your sex drive. You know, you don't really care about sex anymore when you have heroin. And that was definitely true for me. So there were periods where I didn't care about that at all. I had like no girlfriends. I didn't date anyone. And I had no sex for like a year or so. But then there was one time I went to rehab and I got kicked out of rehab, but I ended up getting a girlfriend there and she let me move into her house like right away. And so I, and I didn't have a place to live. So that was appealing. And I kind of feel like being a junkie, it's just like relationships are just something to take advantage of. And that's same with like a intimate relationship. And that's exactly what I did in this relationship. I took advantage of another substance user and her resources and it was miserable. It was probably the most miserable part of my using was living with this person for years and having to just lie and cheat and then pretend like I loved and cared about them over and over again and it was horrible. Was there one specific moment when you decided to get sober? I don't know if this was because of this moment or if there I just had had a lot of these moments, but I was sitting in this like trailer. My parents, I had called my parents into paying my rent. They weren't living in the same town as me anymore. They had actually retired and moved away to get away from me. But I still had a relationship by like calling them and begging for money all the time. And <clears throat> they didn't know how to handle 
a drug addict son and I just took advantage of that. And so they were paying for this rent and I was living in this like part of a trailer. I didn't even have a whole trailer, but I had my own room and I was just watching like USA and like law and order shows all day, drinking forties and doing heroin and smoking all these like butts of cigarettes I had collected at the mall, like at the ashtrays and like taken home and rolled into cigarettes with rolling paper. And I was just nodding off. And I was like, this is my life. You know, like this is what everything's come to like, nodding off in this trailer and like I'm a junkie and I'm never going to get clean and sober like I'm always going to be like this and before I'd always thought that one day I was going to get sober and this was this kind of moment where I was just like surrendering to this addiction like no there's no way I could get sober this is my life I'm going to be a junkie so I might as well just quit pretending and go for it and if that means like robbing people or doing whatever it takes to get loaded I'm just going to do it I'm going to try and manage it so I don't end up in prison or jail for as long as I can. But I know that eventually I'm going to end up in prison the way I'm going. And when I get there, it'll be okay as long as I can do heroin and and I'm willing to do whatever it takes in prison to get heroin. I'll like suck dick. I'll take it in the ass. I don't care. I'm not tough. I'm not going to fight for it. So I'll just do that. And I made this fantasy up of what my future looked like. And I was thinking, this sounds pretty good. I could do this. And then like I took a deep breath and I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe I'll try sobriety. Maybe I'll give sobriety one last chance. And if that doesn't work, I'll go back to this lifestyle. And that was kind of the moment where I packed up all my shit and I like threw it in the car and I drove away. And for some reason I was able to get clean and sober after that. Coming up on the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast, we'll hear more from Brian and learn how sobriety has improved his love and sex life. We'll also hear from Sasha Zimmerman. If you haven't subscribed to the Love and Sex Podcast, now is the time. Karina and I love to bring you stories like this every other week. And the only way to make sure that you don't miss an episode is to subscribe on iTunes. While you're there, please give us a rating or a review. The more love we receive on iTunes, the higher our podcast climbs in the charts, and it helps us spread sex positivity and education throughout the land. You can also send us an email with questions at loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. And now, back to Noah's conversation with Brian. For me, I couldn't see outside of where I was at that moment in the fog of heroin until, like, I got sober. And then I had this, like, you know, sex drive or, like, sexual rebound where my sex drive came back and it was so intense that I didn't care really about... Maybe relationships were part of it, but it was also like, wow, you know, like, I haven't been laid in, like, a year and all my other sex was, like, on heroin... And I don't know if you know a lot about heroin, but when you do have sex on heroin, it's hard to get an erection and then it's hard to ejaculate. And most times you just pretend to because it goes on for so long and it's not really super pleasurable. That was my experience. Some other people have different ones, obviously. But being sober, it was like, like I was saying before, like you're just raw, you're like full of this sexual energy and you just want to have sex with everybody. So then what was that first time like for you? What was sober sex like? Was it kind of scary, the thought of it or... Yeah, it was terrifying. It was 
super anxiety and yeah i mean there's just like this fear you're like well i haven't had sex in forever like am i just gonna come immediately and is she gonna hate me because of that and like what do i do and then like all of those fears like actually came true you know like i came immediately i was embarrassed but it was okay you know like that was i found out for the first time like it's okay to like mess up or something. I mean, I was sober. I tried and it wasn't the best, but it was okay. And she didn't necessarily hate me right away. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after that, sex got better or what, 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 what was the feeling like of having sex sober and, and the intimacy like for you? Well, it's, it's weird. The, the intimacy was more like, more of like an obsession like, I just wanted people to like me, and I just wanted to have sex. And so there wasn't a lot of actual intimacy as I have know it these days, because I've since been married and settled down and have a great deal of intimacy. And it's completely different than that year or first year and a half of being sober and off heroin. So, like, it was kind of a wreck. Like, I made all kinds of mistakes in relationships. Like, I was kind of an asshole and all kinds of stuff. Like, I don't know if you've talked with other people that are in recovery but a lot of like classic old school recovery is like oh we don't want you to get into relationships for a year because you're just not ready for it kind of thing and and I kind of adhered to that but not really and my sponsor actually I had a sponsor and he told me yeah don't have a, get into a relationship for a year but you can have sex with whoever you want casually but don't have an intimate you know like long-term relationship because you're not ready for that and if you're going to go have sex casually, be, make sure you're honest and tell them that's what you're doing. And I was like, oh, that's that makes sense. I can do that. But it turned out it was a little bit more difficult than what I had imagined because I was like kind of trying to date this girl. And then I was like, you know, I don't really want to date you. I just want to have sex with you, I told her. And she said, oh, you're a pig. And then that was it. And so it didn't really work out well. And it never really happened in a very healthy way. Right. So then fa let's fast forward a little bit. How did you get to a point then when it was happening in a healthy way? Because you said you're married now and you, you have a lot of intimacy. How long did that take? And what were some of sort of the benchmarks for you to get to a place where your sex and intimacy could be healthy, sober? Yeah, um, I guess it just took time, you know, like time and like going through the process of like, like living day to day in the, this world without heroin and like I prefer to live in a I prefer I live like in an abstinence way so I don't drink or do drugs and so how to live like that because those were my crutches you know and I hadn't dated like I said I hadn't dated or had sex sober and so it was just like this process of going through these kind of errors and mistakes you know but I was able to continue to grow from them and I never ended up going back to using heroin or drinking over it so, um, yeah, it was relatively quick. It was about a year and a half. I w had been clean and sober. I had moved to San Francisco. And I just ran into uh, this girl I knew from like 10 years ago. We kind of made a friendship and started hanging out and then started dating. And it just kind of happened really fast. And it was like still like a process of like, okay, I'm going out with this woman. Like, how do I handle that? Like, how do I develop this sort of intimacy of what you keep asking like how does that happen and I don't know if I ever come up with a real answer it was just like I stuck with it and I was willing to work out my own insecurities through that process because I was definitely like terrified of settling down you know like what does that mean does that mean I'll never have sex with anyone else and all of 
things that I think normal people go through when they're into a, a committed relationship. And I went through that too. And it just took time. And the more I was willing to put myself into the relationship and the more that I was willing to to realize that the relationship wasn't to serve my own needs, but I was there to serve her needs. You know, like I'm there to like be a loving partner that I was able to grow in like that kind of intimate way where I was able to develop more love and caring and have better sex in the end too as well. That's beautiful actually. Um, this is kind of a very general question, but how has sobriety enhanced your, your life, your, you know, your relationship your social life, your life in general, if you can sum it up in a couple, you know, sentences, what would you say? (laughs) Well, I mean, it changed everything. Like I was a dirty heroin addict that stole and lied to everyone who lived under bridges and like shit himself and did whatever it took to get loaded and took advantage of everyone to being almost the opposite of that. Like I've learned to be responsible and I've learned to love people and I think that's the hugest thing for me is that like I didn't know how to care for people or love for people and kind of being sober taught me how to love and care for other people which I didn't know how to do before and it changed everything about me my life's completely different sometimes it's hard to even relate to that other person it seems like not real Noah, were you surprised with how open and honest Brian was with you in the interview? I really was. I think part of it is because, at least in my head, I think there's a lot of shame that is connected to um, being an addict. Even after, you know, you're recovering, I think there's still a lot of shame in that. And, And opening up and revealing that part of yourself, especially not just to the people you love or the people that you know, but then to go on a podcast and talk about it. But I think part of that probably comes with the territory for him as a journalist and being able to take experiences and put them into words. I think it's really powerful. And I think that people who, who are also dealing with this probably really helps to hear someone else say that they've been through it and they really had these rock bottom moments, but they also came up out of it. So I think there's a similarity there between your interview with Brian and my interview with Sasha Zimmerman, who is also a writer and is also unashamed and unabashed in talking about her experiences. Yeah, let's have a listen. I'm excited to hear it. During the time when you were heavily drinking in your 20s and in your early 30s, what were your relationships like? What was your sex life like? Um, Well, it it was filled with regret. (laughs) It was... Very active. Um, I uh, I definitely had those, you know, mornings of what did I just do? Where am I? Who is this? Um, that were super sketchy, and not really remembering what I had done. Um, it, w- it was not a romantic uh, sex life. It was always very like free and fun and woohoo! Yeah, I'll go home with you. And it was not um, carefully thought out at all. But what got me sober was, right, I didn't lose my job or anything like that. I didn't have, like, a comeuppance in that sense. But um, I was emotionally out of control for sure. And, like, my finances were out of control. My, You know, the, the skills of life had not yet been absorbed in, in, internally by me. And so there was a lot of chaos. And, um, and I did a lot of stupid things. Like, you know, I, I did drugs I would have never tried if I hadn't been drunk. <laughs> Right. So so drinking led me down to some strange paths. And though I'd had um, 
sketchier nights, um, for sure. The last night I drank um, was, I guess, just the the time that it, it was enough, that it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was I had finally just exhausted myself. And the moment was was is very clear to me because I walked out of a bar and it was morning and it was sunny. And I, you know, I didn't expect to see the sun. I had expected to walk out into the night. Um, and the fact that I had been at some bar and what kind of bar stays open all night, I mean, you can imagine, um, at seven in the morning just freaked me out. And uh, and it was a work day. So then I had to go to work. And and that was it. That was it for me. That was when, the, you know, all the things I told myself about how I could control it or do it every now and then or whatever kind of fell away because I had intended to be home for dinner. Right. <laughs> and it was seven in the morning. Sasha took the first steps towards sobriety, in her words, by huddling down in her apartment and white-knuckling it for a month. She let her friends know that she was no longer drinking, and she eventually joined a 12-step program. She said it worked for her because it helped her gain the ability to make better decisions about her life, to not live in chaos, and to have morals and principles with which to live by. So I think one of the most interesting things about your story is that the person you were dating while you were drinking has now become your husband while you're sober, Peter. So how did that relationship evolve from alcoholism to sobriety? Well, one thing was that I kind of realized that whether it was Peter or anyone else, <laughs> um, no one worth it was going to stick around for the show I was putting on. I mean, I'd been, I'd been in relationships before where people had talked to me about my drinking, and usually I always left because they couldn't keep up. And again, at this time, one of the things I realized was that he wasn't going to stick around, and, and no one else of any quality was going to stick around for Sasha the Drunk. So that was motivation. Um, but getting sober in a relationship is really hard because you're going through a million changes at the speed of light, it seems like, in your first year. And so um, that was a challenge, but he was incredibly supportive. And um, and we made it. And then, and then I'm sorry, this is going to break the hearts of some of my readers, but then we got divorced. <laughs> Um, but it had nothing to do with drinking. He was amazing, um, an amazing companion. And uh, and uh, getting through sobriety with someone next to you is not an easy thing. And so I think he deserves uh, a cape because he was pretty heroic. So in that case, have you had any issues with intimacy or sex sober? Is that something that you had dealt with before or had alcohol played a large part in your sex life? Yeah. There, oh, for sure. There was always alcohol involved. Um, yeah. I mean, now that you mention it, I'm not sure I ever had sex sober before I was sober. <laughs> it was almost, it had to be almost always when I was drunk. Um, so I, a lot of people think that because alcohol lowers your inhibitions, that it's going to be terrifying to have sex sober. But I've actually found it's a lot better because 
A, there's no regret, right? Like when when you choose to sleep with someone sober, you are actually making a choice. You are not just like letting the night run away with you or getting carried away or making poor decisions because you're compromised. You're actually like in charge of the decision to have sex with someone. And what's more, you remember it. And so you, you can either take pleasure from that memory or move on or whatever. But the point is you're not going, huh, what happened here? You're, you're aware of it and it gives you a lot more power in the morning, or at least that's how I feel about it. Um, and then, you know, the, the other thing is that it can be meaningful, which I would have rolled my eyes at in my 20s. But <laughs> um, that's been a pleasant discovery and, um, and anyway, just a feeling of being in charge and in control and not being used has been gratifying. What advice can you give those who might be listening who frequently turn to alcohol or other substances to help with their confidence or ease their inhibitions before they go into a social or sexual situation? I guess what I would say is that Anything that robs you of your inhibitions is not a good thing. Like inhibitions are there to keep you safe. Um, I understand extreme shyness and social anxiety and, and things like that. But when you're using things that compromise your ability to make good decisions, that's not going to help your social anxiety in the long run, especially when you wake up with, you know, Mr. Wrong the next morning. Uh so, so I would just say that it's a lure, but it's not a solution. And, um, you know, solutions for those things are very hard and complicated and often involve doctors and medications and things like that. But they shouldn't involve um, relying on something that takes away your power. And I just think that that's the most important thing. I think a lot of times people, especially there's been a kind of weird feminism around drinking, like, hey, we can drink as much as the guys and and uh, and party and all of this. And I just feel like that's not actually feminist. When you give away your power to alcohol instead of a man, that's just not any better. Um, and being kind of trapped by the seduction of alcohol and drugs is not powerful. And feminism should be powerful. So... I think for a lot of people, women and men, having sex should be something that they're really conscious of and not something that they are trying to dampen with uh, drugs and, and compromise themselves with drugs. It seems to me a big takeaway from this episode is that a lot of people have trouble having sex sober because when they're using, it gets rid of their inhibitions. Having sex can be scary. So I understand why people um, maybe do end up lubricating that experience with a substance. But it was interesting because you told me yesterday that you have never had sex while you were drunk. Yeah, it's not something that I intended to do or a rule that I made for myself at any point in time. I was just listening to all of these experiences and sort of thinking back on my own and realizing that's not something that I've ever done. I think that that's unusual, though. I think that most people who who aren't sober and who are drinking or who do use some kind of narcotics do have sex under the influence, probably frequently. No, I agree. I mean, even since we had that sort of preliminary conversation and, I've, and I realized that about myself, I've had conversations with other people and they're like, wait, what? Yeah. How is that even possible? I mean, I've definitely had sex while drunk 
I actually really like having sex when I'm stoned. Okay. Um, I find it not about the inhibitions per se, but it's also a tactile thing. Right. You know, it feels different. Making out is different. Um, but I guess the difference for me is that I don't need to be under the influence to do it. Right. I like sober sex too. Um, it just adds a different element. I want to bring it back to the beginning of the episode, though, and, and talk about Scott for a second because he's really what kicked off this episode. And it's kind of sad because he's still struggling to find a community that enjoys the same kind of sex that he does, but that doesn't have that undercurrent of drug use to it. And so I'm really hoping that he can find that. And I think that he can. We think you can do it, Scott. Good luck. That's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. A special thanks to Scott for writing in and inspiring us to do this episode. And thanks to our producer, Caitlin Baguki, our editor, Nick Offenberg, and to Lauren Bell, our designer. Please take some time to find Love and Sex on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Make sure to leave a review and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. You can also send us an email if you've got a story idea, you've got a question about sex and love, or just want to say hi. Our email address is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. We'll be back in just two weeks with another episode. Talk to you then.